Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this event. It's actually great to see so many enthusiasts of African literature all together in one place. So this panel was organized by the Firoz Lalji Center for Africa, and it's part of the LSE Festival 2020, which is intended to bring together global thought leaders to address today's challenges. Now, since creative writers have always been leaders of thought and have often pioneered ideas and envisioned alternatives, which social science only later catches up with, um, nothing could be more fitting than to have this panel at the conclusion of the LSE 2020 week. African literature is one of the greatest creations, contributions of the continent. And it's where some of the most powerful, insightful, original and humane explorations of global experience have been formed. And yet it's still insufficiently recognized internationally. Above all, literature by women African writers um, has sti is still insufficiently recognized internationally um, because they've always had to contend with multiple constraints and obstacles to the realization and recognition of their work. So as you'll be aware, today is also the eve of International Women's Day, which is tomorrow. So this seems a very good moment to invite to our panel two of the most exciting and leading, change-making African women writers, thinkers, publishers, and influencers. The third person on the program, Angela Wachuka from Kenya, has unfortunately not been able to be here. But fortunately, we have Margaret Busby and Sarah Ladipo Manika with us on the panel. Margaret is a pioneering editor, publisher, and writer who has for decades promoted the work of women of African descent, partly through her publishing house, Alison and Busby, founded in the 1960s, and also through two landmark anthologies, Daughters of Africa in 1992 and New Daughters of Africa um, published last year, which she's going to tell us more about today. And Sarah Ladipo Manika, who I would say is one of the freshest, most fascinating and intriguing voices in African literature today. Her first novel, Independence, um, with brackets around the inn, Independence, 2008, and her new book, um, Like a Mule Bringing Ice Cream to the Sun, which brings to us a, a wholly original character, Murayo, a 75-year-old Yoruba woman living in San Francisco and reflecting on past and present experiences. It's been translated into several languages, and um, Sarah is going to tell us more about it in a few minutes. So, Margaret Busby and Sarah Ladipo Manika are each going to share some thoughts about their work 
and read a bit of it for us. And then we'll hear a conversation between the two of them. And then finally, we'll open the discussion to you um, for Q&A from the floor. And the end of this session, which will close at 2 o'clock, both our authors will be available for book signing right outside this theatre on a table in the foyer. So let us move to our first speaker, um, Margaret. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you all for being here. Um, as as Carolyn said, uh, I'm going to just tell you really how New Daughters of Africa came about. It's is a follow-up from an anthology, as Karen said, I published called Daughters of Africa in 1992. And at that time, I wanted to put to get to compile the anthology because it was something I wanted to read. And partly because at that time, and it's probably still a relevant comment, a lot of people would not have known that there were more than half a dozen women of African descent who were worth reading or who were getting the attention in the mainstream media. I mean, they might have heard of Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or Maya Angelou. And I wanted to say, well, yes, those are important writers, but actually there are many more writers, and you can go back generations and find writers who have not necessarily been given the attention they deserved. So that was what happened in... in 1992. Now we fast forward to 2017, I think, which was when, well, Dorset of Africa actually was commissioned by a, a young editor called Candida Lacey, who was then with a, a feminist company called Pandora Press, and she moved to, she, we, she'd been, dis, she'd published a book of British women writers with two editors, and we, we talked and discussed the idea of doing a book about African women writers. And so I took on the world on my own, and we, she commissioned me to do this anthology, and she then moved to HarperCollins. I followed her. She then moved to Cape, and I followed her. So the book actually came out from Jonathan Cape in 1992. And somehow, over the years, the book had been allowed to go out of print, Daughters of Africa, but Candida and I had kept in touch. In fact, she'd had the good grace to have a, her daughter born on my birthday. <laughs> so, so her daughter, who is now oh, probably late 20s... No, I, I won't give her age away. Anyway, <laughs> over a couple of decades. And so Candida and I had been lamenting the fact that the book had gone out of print. It was probably something to do with editors changing over at the publishing company that had it, Jonathan Cape, and she'd left by then. So we said, well, let's try and do another one. And the only way we could find to do it, would be have, have some sort of financial model that would not be as expensive as cost of the first one, because that one, you know, we'd have had to start off paying huge permission fees. And we wanted the new volume, which we, we were going to call New Daughters of Africa, to have some sort of ongoing legacy, some sort of charitable way it would connect with African women writers, or, or would have some lasting benefit for the, the, the group of people that we thought had not been necessarily um, given the attention they deserved. So we decided we're going to do another volume. 
And so I start spreadsheet, hundreds of possible names, people I know, people I don't know, people I'd like to contact, people whose email addresses I didn't have. And I started writing to everybody saying, would you like to be in this anthology? And the way we're going to do it is we're going to ask everybody to waive their fees. So as a result of it, we'll have some sort of charitable, if you like, some sort of legacy that will benefit an African woman or women in some way. So over a period of about a year, I suppose I must have written, I don't know, 6,000 emails. And one of those emails was to Sarah. And everybody who I contacted agreed to waive their fees. And as a result of that, we had this collaboration between the publisher, Myriad Editions, and SOAS University of London, School of Oriental and African Studies, whereby a woman student from Africa, because of this anthology and because of all these wonderful contributors waving their fees, there's this award that will mean an African student, a woman from Africa who wants to study at SOAS will get a free course of study and free accommodation because of the generosity of all the contributors. In fact, I, I, have, I just decided I'm going to award them all my own award. It's called VOTAS, which stands for Venerable Order of True African Sisterhood. So Sarah has one of those. And this is not, it wasn't curated in, in a way that I, I didn't write to everybody and say, will you write on this, or would you write poetry, or, or, or any guidelines. I would say, how would you like to see yourself represented? And so sometimes I'd write to a novelist, and she'd send me back some poetry. But everybody sent me back brilliant contributions. So there are contributions from people from Antigua to Zimbabwe. Um, it starts with a, a, a writer born in the 1790s and ends with writers born in the 1990s, just to show the historical scope of the, the creativity of women of African descent. And it just covers every genre, and well, it's, it's a treat, and I, I can't think of any anthology I'd rather have edited than this one. So I hope you'll all get a, a flavor of it this morning. Is it morning? No, afternoon. <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and um, that when you have a chance to read it properly, you'll see the wonderful contributions that are in this volume, New Daughters of Africa. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, can you hear okay? Okay. Um, thank you so much to all of you for coming. Thank you to Margaret Busby for inviting me to be on this panel. It's a real honor. Thank you to LSC and all the people that are behind the scenes organizing this. And to Professor Karen Barber. This is such a treat for me. Karen um, was my professor when I was an undergraduate at Birmingham. So it just feels very, very special. So I've been asked to speak on being an African woman writer and building a legacy. So I thought I would do what writers do and tell you stories. So I'm going to tell you five mini stories. 
Number one, curation. African women have been telling stories for centuries, literally since the beginning of time. So imagine if you could gather all of these stories in one place, across the centuries, across nations, from Turkey to Brazil to Nigeria to America, from ancient Egypt to present time. Imagine if you can just collect songs and poems and novels across this vast expanse of time. It would take a woman as tall as the heavens with arms as wide as the globe to wrap her arms around the world and gather some of these stories. So you can imagine my excitement when, in 1993, I discovered that anthology. And this anthology was put together by Margaret Busby. And to my surprise, she wasn't that tall. <laughs> she was very unassuming, very humble. In Margaret Busby's introduction to Daughters of Africa, she describes the book, and I quote, as a contribution to the cause of reclaiming for women of African descent a place in literary history. It's, if its effect is to spur others on to do better, it will have achieved its purpose. Well, I was so inspired that I bought two copies of these <laughs> big thousand-plus pages books. And these two copies have traveled with me. I live in America now, and they sit in the middle of my shelves where I can see them. There's an image on the front of Daughters of Africa and New Daughters of Africa, as you will see, of a woman with her hands like this and her arms open. And it's, for me, it's an image of strength and being open to the world. And this has really inspired me. So this work of curation and the legacy of great curation is something that needs to continue. Number two, platforms. In 2003, a young Nigerian woman found herself worried by what she was seeing in homes in Nigeria. What she saw were homes, not all homes, but most homes, that were largely devoid of books. And where there were books, they were mainly self-help books, spiritual texts, and sort of crime thrillers that you can pick up in airports written by American or European authors. Nothing wrong with any of these books, but she was not seeing books by Africans. And she decided to start a publishing house. I swear, my clicker's not, not working. Is there someone who's good? So I'm clicking what I'm supposed to be clicking. <laughs> I'm going to show you an image, technology provided. Am I pointing in the right direction? Wrong direction? <laughs> anyway, while someone will fix this for me, I will show you an image of this woman. Her name is Bibi Bakare Yusuf, and she is the publisher of Cassava Republic Press. Bibi dreams, and these are her words, she dreams of archiving future in the present. And I like the picture that you'll hopefully see of her. <laughs> Because I'll wait until I can get to the mic. Okay, great. That's okay. So here you go. 
And I'll see if the clicker may, I'll see if the clicker works on the next one. If it doesn't, I'll call you back. <laughs> um, so I like this image of Bibi Bakare Yusuf because it shows her sort of half hidden, um, which is sort of symbolic of publishers in general and so, and also of Margaret Busby. You may not often see them. They are behind the scenes. They are doing the fundamental, foundational work that is so important. Bibi Bakare Yusuf, like Margaret Busby, is a pioneer, and she is a, uh, a disruptor of the status quo. The status quo being the gatekeepers of African writing have for so long been so firmly rooted in the West. So Bibi Bakare Yusuf and others in Cassava Public Press, um, Emma, who is also here, have just been such pioneers. They were the first to publish Teju Cole, the first to publish Lola Shonane, so names that many people have heard of now. And I am a beneficiary of Cassava Public Press's vision and entrepreneurial spirit. They bet on us, so we can bet on them. What's exciting is that there are many other publishers in addition to Cassava Public Press, and this is where it's unfortunate that Angela Wachuka can't be with us, and she would have spoken a little bit about that in Kenya. Number three, sisterhood. Let's see if this works. Okay. So let me tell you about this photograph. There are four of us in this picture, and you may recognize some. This was, oh, I think in 2013, and the occasion was Cinello Operanta here to my left, had just published her first book, Happiness Like Water. Cinello is from Nigeria and America, and the rest of us were there to support her. I was there in conversation with her. We were at a museum. Um, next to myself, you'll see No Violet Bulawayo. No Violet, uh, her, her first book had come out earlier that year, We Need New Names. She went on to be shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Uh, she did very well with that book. Um, and then you'll see, and, and, and uh, No Violet is from Zimbabwe. And then next to No Violet, the, the far end, is Marty Pascal. She is from Tennessee, African-American. And she is an essayist, and she's working on her first novel of speculative fiction. So here we are, different, different ages, different backgrounds, all part of the diaspora. We didn't realize that we were standing beneath that title, the original African diaspora. But I love this picture because I think it really speaks to that. We were at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, which documents the art, history, and culture in the African diaspora. Uh, so we were here, we were cheerleading each other, we were supporting each other. Uh, over time, we have become friends, sisters. Uh, we laugh with each other, we encourage each other, we go out for meals, we cook for each other. And the reason that I wanted to show this picture is because I feel it's a microcosm of what exists around the world. And it's exciting to see how this is expanding. Uh, but to use the the title of No Violet's book, We Need New Names, We Still Need New Names. And I'm hoping and thinking that there are people in this audience that will continue to add to that and to the enduring, continuing legacy of African women writers. Number four, generations, language, and form. 
Let's start with generations. So at the center of this image, many of you will probably recognize, is the famous writer, academic, and activist Ngugi Wa Thiongo. Ngugi is now in his 80s, and he has inspired generations of writers across the continent, including his own children who are not pictured here, although there's a, his nephew in his 20s is up in the far right-hand corner. And I love this image because it speaks to the issue of, for me, of generations carrying the tradition forward, and also intragenerational support. This picture is taken in my home in uh, America, San Francisco, and Ngugi had come to San Francisco, this was last year, touring with his latest collection of short stories. And I was in the audience for this event, as was Namwali Serpel, who's on the back row. Um, and Ngugi started his talk by doing a shout out to both of us, which was just incredible, little us compared to him. And he talked about my first novel, he talked about Namwali's novel that he was reading, The Old Drift, and just how much he appreciated us, which was so uplifting and so inspirational for us. Um, and then afterwards we had dinner together, and this picture also speaks to me of intragenerational sharing. So one of the things we did at the dinner was we, we talked, uh, Ngugi told us about a meeting that he'd had with Langston Hughes. He was the person designated to show Langston Hughes around uh, Makerere University some decades back. Language. I'll speak about Ngugi again. So Ngugi is a self-described language warrior fighting to bring African languages that have been so historically marginalized out from the periphery to the center. In this group, there are several African languages represented, and they include Shona, Nyanga, um, Yoruba, Kikuyu, Bemba, Swahili. And um, language is something, when I think about legacy, and I think about the legacy of African women writers, you know, uh, Daughters of Africa, ha most of the writing is in English, there are translations, um, but the, the need to always talk about language and to bring in as many languages as we can is important. Form. So this brings me to speak a little bit more about the rest of the people in this group. I've already highlighted Namwali Serpel, and I, I really like this image because for me, Namwali Serpel's uh, first book, The Old Drift, really sort of symbolizes this joyous celebration of many forms. It is history, it's historical fiction, it's science fiction, it's speculative fiction, See a show of hands. How many have read this book? Yay. It's, um, it's fairy tales. It's Greek chorus. It's just, it's just wonderful in that way. And this represents, for me, the great diversity of, of form in the voices that we have. Um, there's Michelle Elam, which is, she's down on, on the front row. She's a professor. She's African-American, and she's a professor of literature, and her ex area of expertise is James Baldwin. And, of course, this is another writer who's inspired people, many of us, over the generations. And then we have Harry Elam over here. He is a professor of theater, and his particular area of expertise is the great August Wilson. So there you have it, generation, language, and form as an important aspect of carrying our legacy forward. Story number five, genius. <clears throat> oh, 
when I heard that Toni Morrison had died, I walked to a church in Peckham, and I sat on an empty bench outside. I wanted quiet, but I also yearned for the church bells to ring out in celebration of a mighty writer whose voice rang clearly in my head. I remember that Easter Saturday in 2017 when I spent an afternoon in Tony's home and she said to call her Tony. She told us about the novel she was working on. She planned to call it Justice. I remember her home commanding a view of the Hudson River and of how she sat straight-backed and magnificent in black trousers, caftan, and woolen cap, waiting for the interview to begin. I remember how excited we were to be in her study, welcomed by her gentle smile and outstretched hands. This is it. Yep, she said. And it really was. She said that in justice, there was a slave owner named Goodmaster who made his slaves call themselves Good master. The slaves kept the detested surname to make it easier to find each other in later generations. Three of the descendants would be her characters. She'd named them Courage, Freedom, and Justice. I remember thinking that we have not yet emerged from this struggle and how much we still needed justice. I wonder if she ever completed justice and whether justice can ever be complete. When in the course of our interview I mentioned James Baldwin, she sighed lovingly and called him Jimmy. I remember what she wrote of him in the wake of his death, of his gifts to her of tenderness, courage, and language. She too gave us these gifts, especially the courage to write our stories without a care for anyone's gaze. I remember her Nobel lecture and the lines I had committed to memory. Language, quote, language can never pin down slavery, genocide, war, nor should, it re nor should it yearn for the arrogance to be able to do so. Its force, its felicity, is in its reach towards the ineffable. In that lecture, she told the parable of an old woman, and I remember the intensity of the questions the woman is asked. Tell us what it is to be a woman so that we may know what it is to be a man. What moves at the margins? What it is to have no home in this place? To be set adrift from the one you knew? What it is to live at the edge of towns that cannot bear your company? Tony wrote that in 1993. It could have been written in 2020. I visited her guest bathroom that Saturday, Easter Saturday, and I found it filled with photographs of writers I had long admired, Shoinka, Marquez, Baldwin, and a letter from the Nobel Prize Committee announcing its decision to award Morrison its highest honor. There was also a publication denial notification outlining why Miss Morrison's novel Paradise was banned from Texas correctional facilities for fear of, quote, inmate disruption, such as strikes or riots. I remember just how much she made us laugh that day 
I remember asking what President Obama had whispered to her after presenting her with the Presidential Medal of Honor and being surprised when she said she didn't remember. <laughs> I knew then, but as soon as I left, I thought, what did he say? I was so embarrassed. I realized later that she, the master storyteller, was simply explaining that when one is in awe of someone, what stays in the memory is not what is said, but how it is said. It was her son who later asked Obama what he had whispered into his mother's ear. I love you, Obama answered. I remember at the end telling her that my son wanted to know her secret to writing so well. Tell him I'm a genius. <laughs> she smiled, and I remember how we laughed and laughed. So that's the end of the five little stories that I wanted to share. And I think I, I was asked to now do a little bit of reading from something that I've written. <clears throat> Bless you. Um, so I thought I would read a little bit from Like a Mule Bringing Ice Cream to the Sun. And thinking about what we're discussing today, thinking about legacy and sisterhood, I wanted to read a little bit from my main character, Morayo, and then one of her sister friends. Um, so I, I, don't think, I don't think it needs an introduction other than to say um, my character, Morayo, is in her mid-70s, and she lives in San Francisco, and she loves to take walks, and she's very friendly, and she has friends in the neighborhood, and so she's taking a walk, and she meets th this character, Sage. Now, Morayo is very dignified, and I think she would not be happy that I don't have more to make her, you know, but she's a little bit like Toni Morrison. She has great posture. So just imagine, Morayo, not me. This is a stand-in for elegance. <laughs> I must have walked several blocks before noticing the homeless man in front of me. Seeing how dejectedly he moves, it makes me feel selfish for having worried so much about the DMV. That's the driver's place. I've forgotten what you say in England for the driving place. I drop back a step, and I watch as the man's dog follows, the leash trailing behind him. I'm reminded of a summer in Lagos when an American preacher came to Nigeria and walked around carrying a cross on his back. It was the year that Caesar was in between his Delhi and Paris tours, and just a few years into our marriage, when I discovered that Caesar had another wife. I was in such shock that I considered leaving Caesar that very day, picking up my own cross and following the preacher. I stare now at the back of the man's legs, muddied and clad in the remnants of blue jeans. On the man's backpack is a tangle of straps and tags flapping angrily in the wind. And when the puppy stops to squat, I pass discreetly in front of both of them keeping my distance, you know, in case of lice or some sodden outburst. I expect him to smell badly. 
but he doesn't. And glancing back, I see that he's actually a she, and shockingly young to be carrying such a load, 17 or 18, judging from the slenderness of the girl's arms. Except that when I stop to look again, and I glimpse those steely tiger blue eyes, I'm no longer sure. She could be in her 30s, maybe even 40s. I watch as the woman stops. She reaches into a nearby trash can. She whips out some newspaper and tears off a sheet before turning back to where the puppy has just been. She scoops up the steaming black pellets and then chucks them in the trash. Come on, stupid, she mutters to the dog. Are you okay, my love? So that's a small introduction to Mariah. And then the woman that she sees is Sage. So I'm just going to read uh, a little section from this. So this is Sage a few, few days later. All right. So the other day, this black lady comes up to me. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying she was black, I'm white. She was tall and old. I mean, not old, old, but definitely older than me. Old enough to be my mom, maybe even my grandma. Anyway, she sees I'm carrying all this shit. Plus, I had my dog with me, so I guess she kind of felt sorry for me, and then she kind of like asked if I was okay. But sometimes you get tired of people looking at you, like you need pity and shit like that. Yeah, I'm homeless, but so what? Maybe that's what I should have said. But the words don't always come to you when you want them to. Homeless is just because we're house-challenged. We don't have a roof over our heads, but we make it work. And thank God I'm in the food industry and we have food, and I feel like I've learned a lot from living like this. Because you never starve, you're always clothed, you ground score everything, I mean basically. We help each other, you know? I go to people's parks a lot and I see a lot of it there. No one's better or different than the other person. We're all of one heart. We all care for each other. We have off days and on days just like everybody else does. And I don't drink or anything like that. And I don't do drugs or anything like that anymore. And that's my choice. It's a perspective and a focus that I have to respect myself. And living like this, you can't live like this if you're high all the time. You can't. Or you'd lose focus and you'd be tired all the time. And I have my car and my dog and my stuff, and I have a job, so I'm okay. And I've been married. I lived in Portland, Oakland, Berkeley, had a really good childhood and stuff. My dad made a lot of money back then, living in the Bronx, you know? What people make today, my dad made then. Those kind of figures. So I come from good stock. My dad was a saver, while I'm not. And I'm a free spirit, you know, an artist. But I come from a family of artists and piano playing and music and stuff like that. We had a piano growing up in our house, in my grandmother's house when I was a kid. Ukuleles and mandolins and singing and dancing. You know, that's where I come from, that kind of background. So that's how come the Grateful Dead really gave me that free spirit of danceability. I took modern dance. I had a recital at Carnegie Hall. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm a poor little rich girl or anything, but I come from good stock. And sure, I have a higher sight for myself, of course, but then I would just want to take everyone into my home, you know, and let them have a good night's sleep. 
because I know what it's like. And I haven't slept in a bed for three years, you know? But that's a journey in life. It's like a journalist going to another country, like on a mission, like a missionary. It's not that I don't sleep. I have a pillow and a comforter, you know, a down comforter. I had a sleeping bag. I gave that away. It's so good to give. Giving. I've learned so much about just giving. Giving is such a good feeling. Buying someone a cup of coffee or paying someone's toll or doing something, someone doing that for me, you know. That act of kindness is amazing. Amazing. Be kind. It's very amazing. Sometimes we just don't take that time to know people as people. And maybe someone's heart is broken in some way, you know? So just to backpedal to that woman I was talking about earlier, well, maybe her heart was broken, you know? And I, I shouldn't have been so like, I don't want to talk to you. You just never know. Be kind. Be kind. Thank you, Sarah. It's fantastic to hear the voices. Your book is full of intersecting, overlapping voices, but to hear you actually doing them was a joy. Thank you so Thank much. You. Now, Margaret, you're going to give us a little reading from, from New Daughters of Africa. Well, you'll have to stop me because I could just go on forever. Well, you can't. Well, when, <laughs> Let me just stop you a few I'll minutes. Okay, I'm going to read the, uh, um, something from the first contribution in New Daughters of Africa, which was written by um, a Nigerian-born woman in, who was born in 1793, Nana Asma. And this is from Lamentation for Aisha Number 2. It's, it's a, a lamentation for a friend of hers. And to me, it epitomizes that sisterhood that we've talked about. And she's talking about her friend who she's lost. Oh, my eyes weep liberally for my loved one as a consolation for my grief and a companion for my gloom. Shed copious tears for the loss of Aisha, the noblest of my dear ones of my age group, my friend. This poem was written because there is no one else like her from among the brethren. How long my nights dwell on her. How often she helped me to forget my own grief and how often she helped me most kindly. The depth of my sadness and loneliness after her death has grown. Oh, the multitude of sorrows, the deepening of my gloom. Know you not that love, when firmly established, is priceless? There is no child who could make me forget that love and no brother, nothing that could soothe me, not even all sorts of riches. Therefore, my heart withers from worrying. Sigh after sigh rises up from my grief. Tears have continued to flow constantly, as if they would never dwindle or cease. I cry for her, 
with tears of compassion and of longing and sympathy for her and loving friendship. Actually, talking about birthdays, it's Sarah's birthday. <laughs> and it's, it would also have been Andrea Levy's birthday, right? So Andrea Levy, who and sadly we lost um, last year, a year ago. In fact, uh, we launched New Doors of Africa on her birthday, and we had a, uh, an event at the South Bank Women of the World Festival on the day of her funeral. So I think it's fitting that I read an, an extract from... She, she, she chose a segment of Small Island for me to include in New Daughters of Africa. I met her... Um, she was not well, well enough to write anything new, but she definitely wanted to be included, and she chose a passage. And I'm going to read the passage from Small Island. And I'm not going to try the Jamaican accent, because I'm not as good as say. <laughs> Let me ask you to imagine this. Living far from you is a beloved relation whom you have never met. Yet this relation is so dear akin, she is known as Mother. Your own mummy talks of mother all the time. Oh, mother is a beautiful woman, refined, manly, and cultured. Your daddy tells you, mother thinks of you as her children. Like the Lord above, she takes care of you from afar. Her photographs are cherished, pinned in your family album to be admired over and over. Your finest, your best, everything you have that is worthy is sent to mother as gifts. And on her birthday, you sing song and party. Then one day, you hear mother calling. She's troubled. She needs your help. Leave home. Leave familiar. Leave love. Travel seas with waves that swell about you as substantial as concrete buildings. Shiver, tire, hunger. For no sacrifice is too much to see you at mother's needy side. This surely is adventure. After all you've heard, can you imagine, can you believe, soon, soon you will meet mother. The filthy tramp that eventually greets you is she. Can this be that fabled relation you've heard so much of? This twisted, crooked, weary woman? This stinking, cantankerous hag? She offers you no comfort after your journey. No smile, no welcome. Yet she looks down at you through lordly eyes and says, Who the bloody hell are you? <laughs> you know I'm talking of England. You know I'm speaking of the mother country. But Britain was at war, you might want to tell me. Of course she would not be at her best. But for me, I had just one last question. Let me ask the mother country just this one simple question. How come England did not know me? Now see this, an English soldier, Tommy Atkins, skin as pale as soap, hair slicked with oil and shiny on his boots. See him sitting in a pub, sipping a glass of warming rum and rolling a cigarette from a tin. Ask him, Tommy, tell me now, where's Jamaica? And hear him re reply, well, don't know, Africa, innit? And here is Lady Havelot living in her big house with her ancestors' pictures on the, crowding the walls, 
Ask her to tell you about the people of Jamaica. Does she see the small boy standing tall in a classroom where sunlight draws lines across the room, speaking of England, of canals, of parliament, and the greatest laws ever passed? Or might she, with some authority, from a book she'd read, tell you of savages, jungles, and swinging through trees? It was inconceivable that we Jamaicans, we West Indians, we members of the British Empire, would not fly to the mother country's defense when there was threat. But tell me, if Jamaica was in trouble, is there any major, any general, any sergeant who would have been able to find that dear island? Give me a map. Let me see if Tommy Atkins or Lady Havelot can point to Jamaica. Let us watch them turning the page round, screwing up their eyes to look, turning it over to see if perhaps the region was lost on the back before shrugging defeat. But give me that map. Blindfold me. Spin me round three times, and I, dizzy and dazed, would still place my finger squarely on the mother country. So... Uh, so that was Andrea's contribution. And I, I think one of the one of the um, things that I, I find most interesting about the anthology is, is the connections between generations. In fact, in, in New Daughters, there is a piece, as one might expect, by Zadie Smith. There's also a contribution from Zadie's mother, who is now right. She used to be a therapist. She's now writing. She's called Yvonne Bailey-Smith. So you've got both generations in, in one volume. In Daughters of Africa, we have Alice Walker. In New Daughters, we've got her daughter, Rebecca Walker. So there are many uh, of those uh, intergenerational connections. And there are also uh, writers who have been influenced by other writers. And I'm going to read a piece now by a Guyanese writer called Andai, who, sadly, she died having been living with cancer for a while. She died last year as well. And this was a piece that she wrote that's inspired by Audrey Lord, who was in Daughters of Africa. And Audrey died, in fact, the year Daughters of Africa was published, 1992. And this was a piece that Andai wrote called Audrey, There's Rosemary, That's Remembrance for Audrey Lord. I met Audrey Lord toward the end of 1988, at the Caribbean Association for Feminist Research and Action, CAFRA, meeting. I was chairing a session. CAFRA members were being, as usual, disorderly, and why not? I was in my best head teacher mode. Audrey came in late. I recognized her face, I recognized her face from the back, of, back cover of books, but I had to make a point. She was late. I asked her to identify herself. She said, looking a little surprised, Audrey Lord. I led the acknowledgement by thumping the table. She acknowledged the recognition with a slight raising of the eyebrow, a ducking of the head. A short time after, I was asked if I could be interviewed with Audrey. I agreed. It took some time to get the interview together. When I was free, I heard she was tired. When she wasn't, I was busy. I wasn't trying to be difficult. I hadn't read the cancer books. I didn't know about her struggle with cancer. Eventually, we did the interview at a table in a room full of people and smoke. As I said, I didn't know she had cancer, and I didn't know I had cancer. 
Somewhere in the next six months, I learned she had cancer. Somewhere in the next six months, on International Women's Day 1989, I learned that I too had cancer. I remember only fragments of what happened over the next few days. I remember being at my father's house and people coming in, the women breaking the silence of awkwardness by asking me what I needed, washed or ironed or bought from the for the hospital. The men, not socialized into housework, having nothing to break the silence. I remember my friend Jocelyn Dow taking me to see a play that was on, was, was on in celebration of International Women's Day for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough by Ntozaki Shangi. I remember going to the home of another friend, Alice Thomas, where I cried and Alice said, done, done, never mind, the diagnosis is probably wrong. Mother words. I remember yet another friend, Nisha Hanif, saying angrily that we all know Guyana medical services had fallen apart, so why were we so stupid as to believe they could read my slides? I remember my father sitting with Jocelyn, making arrangements for me to go to Canada for the diagnosis to be checked, even as he denied the possibility it might be right. I remember him calling my mother, who was in England, and who did what she did best, pretended she was coping well. How was her daughter? I remember my brother, Abyssinian, calling to say that he would leave his job in New York, as he did, and come wherever I would be to be my nurse, as he was. I know I spoke during those few days, too, to other women who became major supports, the thing I call not yet a woman's movement call, called in. I do not remember when I wrote to Audrey, but I did, and I remember that she answered immediately and sent me a copy of A Burst of Light with the inscription, Sister Survivor, may these words be a bridge over that place where there are no words or where they are so difficult as to sound like a scream. And so began my friendship with Audrey Lord, around the sharing of our fear of living with, perhaps dying from, cancer. She wrote often, mostly on cards. She'd say, I need your words too. I couldn't write too many, so I called often. And she called too. Audrey told me, as she told countless others, that I should write a diary entry every day, poems. I didn't. When Gloria said Audrey had died, I thought I'd write her a poem. I couldn't. I wrote, I want you in this world. Nothing else. What I meant was that although I believe she will always be in this world in her children, her partner, her blood and non-blood sisters, all her life's work, I wanted her in this world at the other end of a phone or postcard talking about the, the loss of teeth or hair, about Bush and the Gulf War, about where she was going, had been to see an eclipse of the sun, about why something I'd written was okay but not good enough because I had not I had chickened out on homophobia, about why she would forgive me that for a while in the face of CNN images of Rodney King, Ethiopian, Brazilian street children, the thing they call black-on-black -black violence with its origins and white-on-black violence in New York, D.C., the townships of South Africa, about living with and dying from cancer, about her loving me and I her. For I loved her, this woman who came so late to my life, but whose death leaves a void in the center of my life. Audrey, there's Ro Rosemary. That's for remembrance.
Thank you. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's wonderful to hear such powerful texts mm. and read in such a compelling way. Yes. Thanks to both readers. It was really beautiful. Now, we do have written on the program that Margaret and Sarah will now have a conversation, but <laughs> as time is getting a bit tight, I want to suggest that maybe the things you were thinking of talking about, we could open to the whole floor mm. so that those things could arise in the process of answering people's questions. Is that okay? Yes. Would that work? Yes. Because yes, yes. we're running out of so, minutes. Um, do you have particular things that... Uh, Maybe you could suggest the things you would like to discuss further with the participants in the event. That would work. <laughs> you start, Sarah. <laughs> um, well, I, I think, you know, as I've been reflecting on the, the title of this, I've been thinking about legacy and I've been thinking about, you know, how, how do we continue to support and encourage voices uh, of writers? And, you know, I, I touched on a few things as I was talking the, the importance of curation, the importance of platforms. There are other things I think we can talk about, you know, the importance of a room of one's own, the importance of prizes, you know. So I think sort of expansively that's sort of something that I'm interested in, perhaps hearing more um, what, what supported people perhaps in the audience or what people mm. would like to hear more of. So that's one idea. Mm. I, I'd be happy to get people's responses to... Your reading, you know, the, the, the passages we've heard from New Daughters, because you know, the, there's so many questions that always come up about. Um, I, th I think what's important is the way that people influence each other. I mean, I, I know you. What, what are the influences that you drew on for your writing? No, and I, th I think that's you know the the piece that you read at the end was mm -hmm. so poignant in terms of her reflecting back to you know, Audrey Lord and, and, and remembering that inspiration. Mm. And, you know, when I said in the talk that I had those two copies of Daughters of Africa on my shelf and they still sit there, uh, so many writers in that first volume and in the second volume um, have been so inspirational. And, and I, I think not just writers, but one of the wonderful things about New Daughters of Africa, which you must all get if you don't have it already, is your introduction or your preface yeah. when you, or, or maybe it's your acknowledgement page when you talk about music oh. <laughs> and how music has influenced yeah. you. We were just saying that McCoy Tyner has just died. Yes, that's right. Um, and, and so I think of art expansively. I, I'm inspired by writers, but like you, by filmmakers, mm. by musicians. Um, yeah. But the, the other point that I, I find really poignant is that many of the writers in New Daughters were impacted so much by, by Daughters of Africa. In fact, um, when we had the, I think it was the 20th anniversary, we had, we had an, a special um, feature in Wasafiri magazine and there were contributions from, from half a dozen writers who, who each spoke of the impact Daughters of Africa had, had on their life, including one from a writer who said, well, when she started out writing, 
because the most African literature was by Nigerians. She thought she had to pretend to be Nigerian. <laughs> She'd never been to Lagos, but she was pretending. Then she found Daughters of Africa, and she realized, look, she could be from anywhere. <laughs> so that, that helped her just realize that the world was, was open to, to be you know, written about by women of African descent, wherever they were born and, and how, however much they, they, they you know, felt intimidated by, if you like, by the literary canon that existed. They actually could write whatever they chose. And I think that is something that is quite powerful. Just in the same way as when, when we launched um, Daughters of, New Daughters of Africa last year in, in several places, including in, in Trinidad, and some of the Trinidadian contributors were there. And there were two writers in particular. The first contributor got up and said, well, she was really very emotional. She said she'd been thinking of giving up writing because she'd had so little success. And then she got my email. And so there's that feeling that we kind of validate each other. I mean, you spoke about Bibi, and I know Bibi has said that she was inspired to be a publisher because she saw that I'd done it. So that, that continuing passing of the baton, I think, is something that, that we... I know, it's, it's amazing, but it, it, it makes us all stronger. And, and Margaret Busby really is a legend. I feel we should have a special <laughs> applause. Okay, let's pass the baton now to our participants. <laughs> yes, I think what we'll do is we'll take three questions in a row. Short, short questions, please. Um, Colla and this gentleman and the lady behind, and then the, our speakers will mix and match and decide how to answer them. So, yeah. So you've been speaking about writing as, as finding voices. Um, I'd like to ask what your advice would be to young ladies of African origin who live in the UK. Um, I notice that they interpret their African the legacy that they've inherited in different ways. Uh, some are angry, some are at peace with themselves, some acknowledge civilizations thousands of years old, some are in the process of sort of decolonization, which is very, very fashionable now. Um, what would you say to them to, to feel at ease? Would you, would you want them to be radical or would you want them to be um, happy or would you want them to, to find a new identity in the UK as people of African origin? That's question one. Hang, hold on, Kola. Thank you very much. I've had a great time listening to the Can conversation. Can you all speak up? Because I'm kind yes. of deaf today for um, some reason. Sorry. Um, my question is about language. Um, I've been really interested in how publishers grapple with um, the diversity of language on the continent. And when you published the first time and the second time, did you have any conversation, internal conversation about? the language of the, those who write, and do you, how did you settle on just English, or were there any other challenges about getting writers from other language communities? And what do you think about the ongoing conversation about you know, the, the medium of our stories? Thank you. And this lady, yes. Hi, um, where were we able to purchase the anthology from? That's my only question. Very good short question. Anthology, where to publish? So in answer to where you can pub to purchase the anthology outside when this is done. So that's an easy one. And it will be signed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was a question on language and on uh, voice. I don't know. 
I can say something. Yeah, you you can... Can, I mean, the, the, the anthologies just include translations from European and African languages as well as things originally written in English. But, but you go ahead. Uh, so the language one, uh, Kola, it's good that you're bringing that up. Kola has something called Yoruba Names, which you should all search for, um, or he can tell you more about his his efforts and the wonderful things he's doing to bring Yoruba and make it more accessible, pronounce, helping me with my own pronunciation. Um, uh, language is very important, as I said earlier, and I, I think, I, I mean, I would love to, I would love to see more books in the vein of New Daughters of Africa, Daughters of Africa, published in African languages, and that's a whole, um, you know, as I said, Ngugi has been a real champion of this, and it's something I think needs more thought, it needs money, um, and so for me personally as a writer, it is important. Um, Professor Karen Barber did try and help me with my Yoruba, but I unfortunately don't speak Yoruba, which is my father tongue, um, but it's something I feel very passionately about, uh, would like to see more of that. In terms of voice uh, and what you were asking, I have felt angry, joyful, revolutionary, all of those emotions. I think we all circle through that, all of us, in different part, at different times in our lives. So I wouldn't be didactic in terms of saying, you know, subdue this or, you know, raise this up. I, I, I would... I, I, I keep thinking about Michelle Obama and her book Becoming and the notion of becoming. Um, we are all becoming. It doesn't matter how old we are, where we are. And... As writers, we need to, you know, we, we work out our feelings. We work out those things that we feel very passionate about. We grow, we develop, we evolve. And for me, I think as a writer, to encourage young writers, I would just encourage all writers to, to just write. It's very, sim it's, it's very simple. It's quite challenging at times. But just to give yourself permission to write and, and not feel that you have to conform to what everyone else is doing I mean, Like a Mule bringing ice cream to the sun is not, it's shorter than most books, it's got different voices, it's about an older woman, you know, I was told that that wouldn't sell, you know, don't worry about what sells or what, you know, write what is in your heart, I think is what I would say, um, and write from a place of passion. <laughs> Okay, we can have we have time for three more questions, right at the back there, and then also at the back, and then let's have somebody from the front. Oh, somebody right over there. Yes, please, Sue. Okay. Um, I have a question for all three panelists. Um, my question is, are you an African woman writer or are you a writer that happens to be an African or a woman or both? Have you understood the questions? Okay, that's one. Next question. Thank you, that was so beautiful. Um, my question relates partly to what he said and partly to what you said, which is how do you untether yourself from the pressure to write about a certain thing or speak in a certain way, which is sometimes also kind of added by what publishers seem to want to hear from African writers. Um, and then also from a personal perspective, 
about what auntie's going to say or what, you know, the people, if you're writing from your life, your personal experience, what the people in your life and your personal experience, which I feel like sometimes in our African culture can be a bit heavier. Thank you. And down here, please. Uh, hi, my name is Yoletta and, no, 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 no. Uh, my name is Yoletta and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a filmmaker and I'm here um, because I'm really interested in carrying those stories, the type of stories that you write about to the larger screen. And um, is it a request that you get? And do you think, I mean, judging this is my first time coming at such event, but the uh, attendance um, today, do you think there will be some appeal there? Right. There's a question. So there's a question about film and whether there's appeal for African, for the stories that we're talking about. Question of how we see ourselves as, do we see ourselves mm -hmm. as African writers, writers otherwise, and then unburdening ourselves of the burdens um, of expectations, what we're supposed to write about. I think that's one for you. <laughs> well, if you would like to turn any of my work into a film, I'd love to <laughs> chat with you. <laughs> Um, and I can tell you about a lot of other books yeah. that should be turned into film. I think there's, a, look, you know. I, mean, I don't know what the audience thinks would be. Yeah, they just applaud, so I think they're absolutely behind <laughs> <I> you. <laughs> like, would you buy a ticket? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, and this brings us to the question about how we see ourselves as writers. You know, I, I am proudly an African writer. I'm proudly a black writer. I'm proudly a woman writer. I'm proud. I, I pretend to be American. I live there. I'm proudly an American writer. I'm proudly British. I'm proudly Nigerian. I, you know, I, I, um, I identify with many different places because of how I've, where I've been. Um, I, I think identification is also... Um, it's a question of power as well. I, I think I particularly identify as a black woman writer because I know that up to this date we still have not heard from most black women writers that are out there and that will you know are still coming up so so for me it's a political positioning that I will maybe see myself or introduce myself as that because I know that we need to hear more um, and this kind of jumps to the other question about how do we let go of sort of the burden of expectation of what we're supposed to write about. Um, we need new names. We still need new names. If there were thousands of us who were writing and being published, then it wouldn't really matter. Then, the, then, the, then this burden of sort of having to write, like I have to write about a Nigerian woman's experience in her 70s. If there were thousands of other people writing those stories, I could do whatever I wanted, really. Um, so my solution to kind of getting rid of this burden is to encourage as many other people as possible who are passionate about writing and seeing what I can personally do to, you know, lift up these voices. Um, but I think it's a real, you know, if I'm remembering correctly what you were asking, the, the pressure of being, having to be a spokesperson and, and having to write in this way or that way is a real thing. And, um, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, for me, this is one of the joys of having a sisterhood. 
Um, I see Sarah from Books and Rhymes um, and others in the audience, you know, Emma from originally with Cassava Republic, who've just been part of the sisterhood in terms of encouraging others and helping to raise voice. So that, for me, is, is part of the solution. Thank you so much. I, I would also yeah. like to encourage people to think of the industry as a whole. So a lot of people want to be writers, but I think people have to think about also being publishers or editors. Or filmmakers. Of, exactly, because that's the way we, we create our own agenda. And we don't want to always be writing what somebody else thinks we ought to be writing or putting a label on us because... I mean, I don't get up in the morning and think, oh, I'm an African woman today, again. <laughs> again. <laughs> I don't have to. I, I am who I am. It's, it's somebody else who will label me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important that we, are a, a, we participate in the industry at, at every level, whether it's in the publishing on the reviews pages, in every, every, every area that, that literature has an impact, we ought to be part of it. it. All of us ought to be part of it. So it's not just this sort of person or that sort of person or this gender or that ethnicity. We're all part of it. I mean, one of the things that Toni Morrison said, talked about, was she said it's, it's not about special pleading or patronage, it's about the health of a nation's literature. Because we're all part of that. It's all an obligation for us all to be part of that. Well, on that inspiring note, I think we need to draw proceedings to a close. Margaret said earlier that she could go on all day. And I think I can testify that we could all listen, not only all day, but all week, all month, all year. And we hope you will continue to, to give voice to these really interesting and profound concerns and thoughts. So thanks.